0: reminder, isn't it? That God's name is a strong and mighty tower and that nothing else compares to the power of the name of God. Amen. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I've, I've been here the last couple weeks, but I haven't been preaching the last couple weeks. And so it's been good to have a little bit of a break. It's been good to be able to serve my family in, in kind of controlling and rallying our kids. Uh, uh, when Ken was preaching a couple weeks ago, uh, I was there, but I, was, I had two kids in a wagon. I was pulling back and forth across the, across the back there. And so uh, deeply grateful to Ken a couple of weeks ago for bringing uh, God's word for us and, and thankful to Austin to, to, who, who brought God's word to us last week. And, um, and it's not an easy thing to, to, it's one thing to preach, and, and it's a whole other thing to then say, can you preach on this specific passage as we're going through this sermon series? And so that's a whole other level. So, so thank you, brothers, for, for your work in that. And it's good to be back. It's a delight to be able to open God's Word with you because I'm convinced that uh, the days that I open up God's Word are days that are better than the days that I don't. And so what a privilege that we get to open God's Word together, that we get to, as a body, uh, seek to understand and, and to be shaped by God's Word together. And so I think if there's nothing else that I've learned uh, in this time that we've been social dis- distancing and, and through the time of COVID, uh, I think I have uh, learned that we never know what tomorrow is gonna bring. Uh, the phrase, if the Lord wills, has taken on meaning that I, I mean, I always think I knew it, but, but I've embodied it in a, in a much bigger way, right? It's such a stronger phrase. Uh, I realize that, that in a new way, uh, we are not certain what tomorrow will bring. Uh, it, and I think that's actually a pretty common fear that, that ha- a lot of people have. They fear about what tomorrow will bring. They fear what l- their life will be like 10 years from now. Uh, they fear what life will be like 20 years from now. And the decisions that they make that will then affect 20 years down the road. And while we are not here pretending to know what the sm- stock market is going to do tomorrow, And while we are not here saying that we know the the future of what happens next week, uh, we do have certainty about eternity, uh, which gives us confidence for tomorrow, actually. So how is it that we can be uncertain about tomorrow, but very certain of forever? Well, as John concludes his letter uh, in the book of 1 John, uh, to different Christian churches, he talks about the different confidences that we have for eternity that then affect our very tomorrow and in fact affect what happens when we leave this building. And so we conclude our series in First John, this litmus test of love. And for the last time, I want to uh, work with us in our memory verse. You guys have had 13 weeks to get this right okay so if you still don't know it's okay it's on the screens we're not gonna we're not gonna quiz you and keep you from graduating or something Uh, but let's say first john 3 23 together and this is his commandment that we believe in the Ah, jesus christ and love one another just as he has commanded us i always mix up Believe in the name of his son or believe in his son. And so there you go. Let's pray for our time this morning. Father, thank you that your word is true, even when we misquote it. Uh, Thank you that your word is true, even if we do not perfectly live it out. So Father, we pray that by your spirit, as we finish the book of 1 John, you would give us confidence in the Christian life knowing all that we have is due to your name, that all the confidence that we have is not in ourselves, but is in you. And so, Father, would you use 1 John 5 in powerful ways in our lives this week? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So here's what I want you guys to walk away with this morning, that if there's nothing else that you remember from the sermon, or if you are, had a really late night last night and you're already dozing off, this is what I want you to, to jot down before, before those eyes, lids close. And it's the thing that I think John is communicating to us from verses 13, really, uh, through 21 of chapter 5 of 1 John. Here, here's the big idea. Push away fear and embrace the real Christ because confidence in Christ is better. Okay, we need to push away fear and embrace the real Christ because confidence in Christ is better. And we're going to look at that, believe it or not, in five different confidences that John writes about at the end of 1 John. We have a confidence of eternal life. We have a confidence in our prayer. We have confidence in the forgiveness of God. We have confidence of our identity and we have confidence of the truth that he's going to write about. So let's look to God's word. Uh, I encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open it to 1 John chapter 5. And we're going to read beginning in verse 13. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The, the verses are inside your bulletin in the sermon notes so you can follow along. And John concludes his letter to these Christians like this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, let's look at what John writes in verse 13 about this confidence that we have of eternal life. You know, it's, it's, it's a question, how would we wrap up such an important letter? If you are writing a monumental letter to a lot of Christians to give them hope in the midst of adversity, to give them strength to continue to walk in Christ, even when difficulty is happening outside of their church and within their church, this is how John decides to close out his letter. Remember, this is a, these are Christian communities where the departure from these false believers have left the true brothers and sisters of the Christian churches. They're a little bit shaken. They're a little bit scared, especially when people who left the faith even accused these real Christians that they didn't have this secret knowledge to know God truly. And so in a dramatic end, John hits it out of the ballpark in terms of giving hope and certainty and confidence in the lives of these believers. And so John gives five major ways that Christians have confidence because of Christ. John doesn't want to leave them in doubt. He wants to leave them with confidence uh, of walking in Christ going forward. And so confidence in God brings bold christian living right fear of messing up well that just cultivates more fear and so notice the first confidence that john gives them in verse 13 that they have confidence that they have eternal life all the things that john had written before them was to bring confidence to show their litmus test of love and to give them assurance of their eternal life In fact, this is so important. It it really seems to have been the cause of the entire letter. That's why John says, I write these things, meaning all the stuff that came before this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Because confidence in God brings bold Christian living knowing that we are secure in God, makes us unfearful of what could happen in the future. And so if confidence in God's work brings indifference in our lives, instead of bold Christian living, well then what we find out is that it's not Christianity that we're actually living out. Assurance of eternal life is an important Christian certainty. Right? So if we ask each other the question, if you were to die today, what confidence you'd have to be with God or separated from God? John here in our passage in verse 13 says that we can know and that we can know definitely, not maybes, not 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 uncertainties, no ifs or buts, but that we can know certainly that we have eternal life. And so John's target in writing, is to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. Well, what does it mean to believe uh, from what John has said so far in the book of First John? What does John think it means to believe in the name of the Son of God? Well, as we've been walking through the book of First John, in chapter 1, to believe in the name of the Son of God is to admit that we have sin. And then in chapter 1, verse 9, to confess our sins. And then in in chapter 2, to walk in the way that Jesus walked. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, to love the brothers and sisters of our church body. And then he tells us that to believe in the name of the Son of God is to have love for the Father, not love for the world in chapter 2. And then later in chapter 2, it means remaining gathering with the body, not to abandon the body. That to believe in the name of the Son of God is to be someone who has been anointed by the Spirit, John wrote in chapter 2, verse 20. And then in chapter 3, we see that to believe in the name of the Son of John, or Son of God means that we have love that is not so much word only, but in action and in truth. We have an action-based love. And then we saw that in a few weeks ago that in chapter 4, to believe in the name of the Son of God means that we confess both Jesus' deity and his humanity, and then that we confess that Jesus has eternally existed from chapter 4. So really what we see is that belief is not a passive statement. It's not something that we say with our lips that we have no idea what it means. No, this is belief in action. This is belief lived out. This is what was true of the Christian community that John wrote to. Uh, This is evidence also for us to say that when we believe in the name of the Son of God and that we have confidence for our eternal life, the world lives in fear. Christians live in confidence. We live in confidence because of the resurrection and confidence of our transformed lives, and so a Christian life that remains unchanged and untransformed, John actually says, is not a Christian life. So, believer, does evidence in your life for confidence of eternal life connect with your, with the list that John wrote in First John? Are the confidences that we have for our eternal life, does it connect and match up with what John says is evidence of belief in the Son of God? See, confidence of eternal life will be evident in the fruit of our lives. So Christian, when you are with others, how quickly are you ready to admit not general, but, but specific sins as a way of humbly living with others? Christian, what has love for your brothers and sisters in our body looked like in this past month or the month before that? How has the love of God been in action and not merely in words only? Since what we confess to be true about God matters, well, Christian, how can you continue to study something this summer that will aid in your understanding of God so that you can continue to confess truth. So let me encourage you to do two quick things. Uh, If you are bored this summer, which pretty much every teenager is gonna say to you, I encourage you parents to pick up two books off of Amazon or whatever book source you get to uh, and to read this with your teenagers Or if you don't have teenagers, to pick up a couple of these books and to read them anyway because they will help pursue your uh, knowledge of God for you to confess what is true. So two things. A book called Who is Jesus Uh, by Greg Gilbert. And then Wayne Grudem has a really short little book called 20 Beliefs Every Christian Should Know. Okay, so uh, Wayne Grudem, 20 Beliefs Every Christian Should Know and Greg Gilbert's Who is Jesus are two really short reads that would be great in, that you would read this summer that would equip you uh, to pursue truth this summer. John wants Christians to have confidence. He wants them to know that we have eternal life. And this is not confidence today that goes away tomorrow, but confidence that is from now that goes into eternity. There's no confidence in walking an aisle 20 years ago and then remaining unchanged. That's not what John is talking about. There is great confidence in what John is talking about with our lives being changed as a result of God's spirit at work within us. So Christian, know the great confidence that we have because of Christ. So push away fear and embrace the real Christ because confidence in Christ is better. Let's look at this next confidence that John writes about in verses 14 and 15. Confidence in our prayers. No matter what is happening around us tomorrow or even this afternoon, we have confidence because we have eternal life, because we believe in the name of the Son of God, meaning we believe in all who Jesus is. We have confidence also in our prayer. We have confidence that he will hear us and that as we ask according to God's will, he will do those things. What person can wake up a king at two o'clock in the morning simply to ask for a cup of water? Well, the king's beloved children can, can't they? So beloved child of God, you have the ear of the king of the universe. You are beloved by God and therefore you have confidence that he hears your prayers. So when you pray, believer, it doesn't go to deaf ears. Your prayers don't stop at the ceiling. They go to the ears of the king who hears you and loves you. So when you are praying to the father who loves you, who sent Jesus to earth for you to to die and to rise, The, the Father who leads us in all truth by His Spirit and is making things ready for us to be forever and finally with Him for eternity in glory. The things that we pray for when we are focused on God's kingdom aren't things like, God, please give me a new Corvette. Instead, it's more like, we pray for God's name to be made great through our lives. Sorry, Scott. <laughs> we pray for our neighbors to know the light of life. We, we pray for our family to grow in the truth. And, and we can be confident that when we do that, God delights in doing those very things. He delights in working in those very ways. So prayer is not a manipulation in making God change his mind to somehow do what we want. No, prayer is made in line with God's will. And so to pray according to God's will is to pray in agreement with what God wants, not what we just desire or insist that God does for us. Because confidence creates not only bold Christian living, confidence creates bold prayers. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that we, pray, that, that, that we pray less when we think it doesn't matter? If we think that, that it doesn't matter what's gonna happen, well, that usually doesn't motivate us to continue to cry out to God. I, I had a boss one time who was always grumpy and mean and whenever we had an issue or we needed to request time off or anything like that, we didn't even wanna ask for permission Because we knew that she would just be upset by by us even bothering her, and so even if we had legitimate issues that needed concerning, uh, we that needed her attention, we wouldn't go to her even if they turned out to be really bad situations. How often do we feel that same way towards God? If we think God doesn't care, or if we don't think that our prayers make any difference, well, then we won't do it, brothers and sisters. What do your prayers look like? Do they reflect confidence that God hears you? Do your prayers reflect confidence that God delights in working through your prayers? Because God does. How might confidence change our prayer habits? How might confidence in God make you pray more for your neighbors or for the kids in your children's classrooms? or for those who even disagree with us. Don't let prayer be optional in your Christian walk. Make it essential and have confidence that God hears us. The third confidence that John writes about in verses 16 to 18 is confidence in forgiveness. Let me read verses 16 and 18 again. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So John recognizes what is true of all Christians, that becoming a Christian doesn't mean that we just stop sinning altogether. Certainly our response as Christians to our sin is different. John sees a possibility that Christians could be found in sin sometimes. That's what verse 16 is saying. Verse 16 is saying that when when someone is seeing another brother or sister in sin, that we have to do something about it. And yet, in such a situation, John says that we have confidence and we have hope. What is the loving thing to do when the sin of a brother or sister becomes evident? Well, the loving thing to do is not simply to ignore it and pretend like it doesn't exist. If we believe that sin is worse than cancer, we don't ignore cancer. If we believe sin is worse than drinking poison, then we don't ignore drinking poison. There is something to be said of not immediately addressing someone and letting love cover a multitude of sins, but John doesn't think that one Christian knowing about the sin of another Christian should do nothing. We have confidence before God. We have the king's ear. We should then use our position for the sake of our brothers and sisters. We should pray to God and ask that God would work in that person's life. Notice here that the immediate response isn't even confronting that person, but first praying for his or her well being. What would conflicts look like in our homes and in our church if before we address the situation, we spent time in genuine prayer for that other person? we would go from being combative against someone to being on the same side fighting against sin. Think about this in our church. What brotherly and sisterly affection we would have in genuinely wanting to not win an argument or a position but instead to win our brother and sister from their sin. That's actually the language that Matthew 18 uses when Jesus is teaching uh, about when we do need to confront people because of sin. We go to them, and if they listen to us, we have gained or we have won our brother and sister. Friends, that is sacrificial love. Could it be that church conflicts have very little prayer involved where we aren't praying for the destruction of our brother and sister, who we see as our enemy, but instead, then we would be praying for their well-being, for their growth, and for our unity together. In that we have confidence, that God will give him life, verse 16 says. John says that there is sin that leads to death, uh, but it's interesting here that he makes no connection to that a believer can do it. Notice in verse 16 that the believer is committing sin that does not lead to death. If we believe, John, earlier, that confessing sin leads to forgiveness, the washing away of our guilt, that it leads to eternal life, and that genuine Christians do those very things, well, then there is no sin greater than the powerful cleansing, washing of Jesus' blood. The sin that leads to death, in what John refers to here, is a refusal of repentance from sin. And I don't think that genuine Christians do that. Because every believer, their sins are covered by the blood of Christ. We can trust that the repentant sinner will lead to a transformed life. And we have confidence of forgiveness. So for example, I used to stay awake at night as a young teenager. I was afraid that I had unknowingly committed um, a particular sin that had been unpardonable that would lead to death, okay? So every single night, I would, I would often lay awake in my bed, nervous that I had somehow unconsciously committed a sin and that I didn't know that this was the sin that was gonna lead to this death that, that I couldn't do anything about, And so I would confess again and again every single night every single sin that I could think of that I'd ever committed that day or the previous day uh, and then trying to place my trust in my confession of the sin instead of in Jesus' death and resurrection. But then there were seasons where then I didn't care if I lied because, you know, what does a white lie hurt anyone? And so I would go back and forth from almost like this, manic depressive thing of like oh no I am afraid I've somehow committed this this sin that has led to death to a "Ah, it doesn't even matter white lies don't matter any at all right and so even this idea of a white lie would give the impression that what we say doesn't matter or would influence how then we might initially read these kinds of verses and so this is often a place where Roman Catholics will argue for what it means by what they call mortal sin, uh, sin that leads to death, versus venial sin, that sin that does not lead to death. Uh, But thankfully, we don't have to have those categories because of verse 17. Look at what verse 17 says. John says all wrongdoing is sin, actually. (laughs) Even the white lie, Brian, that you used to say, uh, all wrongdoing is sin. So sin that doesn't lead to death isn't some sin that just isn't bad. All deserves death and separation from God since all sin is ultimately against God, right? Think about what King David wrote in Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. Well, John says in verse 17 that all wrongdoing is sin. So any wrongdoing separates us from God. So there aren't some sins that separate us from God and some that don't. But sin that does not lead to death is actually the sin that is covered by Jesus Christ. And so an incorrect understanding of sin often creates confusion about God and salvation. That's why I would go from, it doesn't matter if I lie or not, that was a confusion about sin that, that led to create more confusion about God and salvation, just as much as staying up at night and confessing every single thing that I could because I was afraid that somehow Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection wasn't enough to be able to save me. And so we see that an incorrect understanding of sin often creates confusion about God and salvation. But thanks be to God who reveals our need of a Savior by plainly showing us what sin is and how it affects us personally and how to respond to God's kind gift of Jesus in faith to find forgiveness. God's all-sufficient word, the Bible, is where we can find the very clear answers about forgiveness. And so forgiveness and holiness are kind of two sides of the same coin. God's grace in that goes together. Although a believer can stumble and fail into sin in many times, maybe even in big ways, the general path of direction for a believer is that his or her life will be one of moving towards holiness and passion for God and for his glory. And so if someone follows the, 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 the ideas of mortal sin and venial sin, I think that we can fall into a flippant attitude about how we view sin. To sin that leads to death is to have a heart that has been unchanged by God's love, unchanged by Christ, and to then to persist in convictions and acts and commitments that show love of the world, not love of god and so it's actually to reject jesus so our pattern isn't to continue in sin habitually it is to trust in he who was born of god as verse 18 says which is jesus whose blood protects christians from destruction satan cannot destroy satan cannot ruin what christ has purchased victory over sin and Satan is is a certainty in the Christian life because of Christ and we know that we have been forgiven and been given eternal life. And so what we see is that Satan must operate within God's sovereign control and within God's rule and cannot function outside of what God allows. We see that example in the book of Job, which we're gonna be starting next week, ironically enough, uh, for nine weeks. So we can have confidence that while Satan may persecute, while Satan may tempt and test and even accuse a believer, God protects his children and places definite limits on the evil one. So we need to push away fear and embrace the real Christ because confidence in Christ is better. Let's look at the fourth confidence that John writes about in verse 19. This confidence of identity. Right? Life has been hard for these Christians that John's writing to, but he reminds them of the great confidence of their identity. They're not numbered with the world. They are numbered with God and his people. They are from God because they've repented from their sins and placed their hope in Christ which has become their greatest part about them. See, Christians are not part of the world. They are in Christ. But notice the important point that John is making in verse 19, that because they are not in the world, the evil one does not have power over them. He has power over the rest of the world, but not over God's people. We are in Christ, and therefore we have confidence that the power that the evil one has does not control us because we live for God. What what does Paul write to the Corinthians? The love of Christ compels us, not the power of the evil one. Our values and our actions don't have to look like the world's, uh, nor should they, because our values and our lives reflect the one who has saved us who has purchased us by his blood and is transforming us for his eternal kingdom. So Christian, in what ways are you tempted to look or to do like the world promotes? This is the hard part of being in the world and not of the world, as as Jesus says in John 17. We often think that if we looked more like the world, then then the non-Christian might feel more comfortable into coming but the reality is that we are not of the world and therefore we do not need to reflect the values or the actions of the world. Christians are called to be a light set on a hill, a picture of God's power in our lives, not masking our true identity. To live like the world in what the world promotes or in what the world values or what we are to look like often confuses whether we are controlled by the evil one or whether we are redeemed by the righteous one. Christian, as you examine your life, are there ways in which your desires and your values reflect the world more than the kingdom of Christ? What are ways that you can begin to evaluate or even ask, what does it look like for Christ to be the center of this area of my life and and that area of my life and and that area of my life because we're not numbered with the world. We are numbered with God and his people. So push away fear and embrace the real Christ because confidence in Christ is better. Well, let's look at this last confidence that John writes, the fifth confidence at the end of 1 John 5, verses twenty. Through 21. Let me read that again. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, John is giving us the confidence of the truth in all the things that are happening around us. Issues with police, issues with race, issues with COVID, issues that make tomorrow uncertain. Christians have great confidence in having eternal life, that we have confidence in prayer, that we have confidence in forgiveness, that we have confidence in our identity, and we also finally have confidence of the truth. Jesus, who was from the beginning, who John had seen with his own eyes, who John had touched with his own hands, Jesus who had taught the things concerning eternal life, John reminds us that Jesus, who is the Son of God, has come in the flesh and has taught us what is truth. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who is the Messiah, who has come to rescue his people, Jesus is true. Jesus did not say true things that we can just get behind. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. To be in God, who is true, comes by being and existing and finding our identity in the Son, Jesus, the Messiah. You know, there was a conspiracy going around at the time that said John's knowledge about Jesus wasn't enough for a godly life that people needed additional secret knowledge. And the secret knowledge that others insisted was needed was to know the real Jesus, not what John had said. But we know that Jesus is the Son of God who came in the flesh, who is the suffering Messiah, who has come to rescue his lost sheep. He is the eternal God and the eternal life which is what we need to hold fast to. God's word is sufficient for our entire lives pertaining to the Christian life. And so we have confidence in the truth of Jesus. So right knowledge, having the truth, right knowledge should lead us to right living. See, Christianity is not a hindrance to intellectual activity but it actually should drive us to right thinking. So the best way to live is going to be in conjunction with knowing him who is true and being in Christ. And so because we know the truth, because we know the one and only true God, that should drive us from idols and to continue to keep us in abiding in Christ. Jesus would normally end his teachings with, he who has ears, let him hear. I think John's doing something really similar here in his final appeal as, as, as a pastor to these, to these Christians. John's final appeal is to reject what is false and to embrace what is real. To embrace Jesus, the God who came to earth, God who died on the cross for the penalty of our sins, God whose blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness, God who will one day return for his people and will transform us to be as he really is. That is the truth that we can have confidence in. That is the truth and what is real that we should embrace. So John's final appeal to keep ourselves from idols is to reject what is false and to embrace what is real because we have all the confidence in the world for our eternity push away fear, and embrace the real Christ because confidence in Christ is better than anything the world offers. We do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what life will be like in 10 years, but we have all the confidence. No matter what comes our way, no matter what problems arise, we have confidence in our eternal hope in Christ. Fear doesn't need to grip us. Fear doesn't need to immobilize us. But through our great confidence in God, we can face every situation, every circumstance, knowing that we are confident of our salvation, knowing that we are confident that God hears our prayers, knowing that we are confident in our forgiveness that God has given us, that we are confident that we are not in the world, that we are numbered with God. We are part of his sheep, part of his flock, and we have confidence that we are in the truth. And that kind of confidence casts fears away and drives us to greater Christian hope in Christ and greater Christian living. What great confidence we have. No matter what happens tomorrow to you this week, no matter what happens in your jobs, no matter what happens with your family, no matter what happens whether you lose your home, we have great eternal confidence no matter what happens with your health, no no matter what happens with your finances, with the stock market, we have such great confidence in our eternal hope in Christ that none of those things affect one moment of our identity that is hidden in Christ, that has been purchased for us by his blood, that we will walk in newness of life together. What great confidence we have. There's nothing better to walk in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is easy to fear the unknown. And it is easy to fear playing the what-if game. It's easy to be fearful of, of not doing enough. Father, it's also easy to, because we don't think that we can do enough, to do nothing at all. And Father, we recognize it is easy to then pretend like Like we don't need a savior because we think uh, and, and lie to ourselves thinking that our lives are just fine. And so Father, help us to find the balance that we are not immobilized because of fear or we are not running frantically around because of fear, but in fact, that we would live bold Christian lives, that we have confidence beyond the grave that we have confidence beyond the stock market and beyond our housing and beyond our health and beyond our jobs and beyond what is happening in our families. We have great confidence in you. We know the truth of Jesus. We've embraced the truth of all of who Jesus is. And so we have confidence that you hear our prayers and that we can live for you without fear or shame. So God, would you work in our lives every bit of confidence that we could ever need. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. What great confidence we have that he who is preparing a place for us will return for us and that he will keep us safe till our faith is turned to sight. What great hope we have in no matter what we face tomorrow. We'll hear now our benediction as we finish our time together from the very end of the book of revelation john writes this he who testifies to these things says surely i am coming soon amen come lord jesus the grace of the lord jesus be with all amen amen enjoy the rest of your lord's day